This is the Urban Political, the podcast on urban theory, research, and activism. Hello, and welcome to this episode of the Urban Political, in which we're going to talk about the urban politics of density in and beyond the pandemic.、Um, today, we welcome five guests、um, from.、Uh, Different time zones,、uh, and we're really happy、uh, to have you on board today.、Uh, we ha- also have、um, a moderator for today's podcast, Colin McFarlane, and、um, four speakers. I'm going to briefly、uh, introduce them to you.、Um, the moderator, Colin McFarlane, is a professor of urban geography at Durham U- University in the UK. His work focuses on the politics of urban life, particularly in relation to density, infrastructure, and equality. Hengying Chen is a postdoctoral research associate at Durham University in the UK.、Uh, trained as an urban planner and urban economic geographer, she's researching the political and cultural economy of land value capture and the sensorial geographies of urban density and precarious politics. Lucia Serrara Morato is the High Density Development Project Manager at Tower Hamlets Council in London. Trained as an architect and urban designer, she's currently completing a PhD at the Bartlett School of Planning in London. Margot Rubin is an associate professor at Wits University in South Africa and works at the NRF Research in Spatial Analysis. And city planning, and the School of Architecture and Planning. She is also a research associate at the Southern Center for Inequality Studies. And last but not least, Roger Kyle is a professor at the Faculty of Environmental Studies at York University in Toronto. He researches global suburbanization, urban political ecology, cities, and infectious disease, and regional governance. And with this、uh, brief introduction, I am happy to hand it over to uh, Colin McFarlane uh, uh, as the moderator. And、uh, Colin, we are very happy、uh, to have you again with us、uh, about one year after our last、uh, episode on blaming density. And we really look forward to this discussion. Excellent.、Uh, thank you, Marcus, and、uh, thank you, Ross, as well, for organizing this today. Um, so what I'm going to do is I'm just going to start,、um, as Marcus was saying, by saying a few words by way of introduction to the topic, and then we can get going. So density,、um, as we all know, is a fundamental question in the city. As ask someone to define a city, and the chances are that density will feature somewhere fairly quickly in the answer. In a certain sense, density is what cities are for. Cities compress people, things, goods, money, and information together. Cities are, in a certain sense, densifications. The histories of urban thinking, policy, and politics have also been histories of managing, counting, regulating, and shuffling densities. The history of density has also been a history of violence, of demolition and displacement, of projects that reorganize the urban fabric and destroy some densities, and sometimes bring new ones. Into being, density is inseparable from capitalist urbanisation, 
and its processes of creative destruction. And it's as much about class, race, gender, and other social vectors as it is about abstract numbers. Even before the pandemic, there was a lot of debate about density globally. Density was positioned by all kinds of voices as a solution to all kinds of problems. Cities looking to respond to climate change, for example, often talked about building compact, low-carbon cities. Density was seen as a good thing for social cohesion or for economic innovation. We heard more and more about building compact cities, about the possibility of the 15-minute walkable city, which we hear a lot more about these days, and the need for greater densification, even as cities continued to sprawl and suburbanize and to spread out territorially across the world. And so now it's uh, just over a year since the start of the COVID-19 pandemic, and all of that is up in the air, or at least it seems to be up in the air. We've seen a vast de-densification of the urban world caused by the virus, followed by all kinds of new architectures and regulations for managing density in order to reduce infection. New social anxieties have become attached to density. There are heated debates, for example, about the presence of different kinds of crowds in the city. And at the same time, there's an increasing longing, in some quarters at least, for lost densities, for the buzz and the bustle of people thrown together in the city. City authorities worry about the future of city centre economies. Transport managers struggle to plan for an uncertain future. Analysts speculate about new patterns of labour distribution and changing residential geographies in and beyond the city. So density, as we've come to know it, seems to be at stake in ways that it has scarcely been before. So to explore how COVID-19 is impacting density, we have four people, as Marcus was saying, who come at density from quite different perspectives and contexts, ranging from South Africa and Taiwan to Canada and the UK, and who've also been working in all kinds of other cities globally from different positions. So I want to start then by asking about density itself. How should we understand it? And why is it important both to how we understand cities and to how we understand this pandemic? Perhaps I could go to Margot Rubin in Johannesburg just to start us off, please, Margot. Sure, thanks, Colin. I think we need to think about density in a whole lot of different ways. I mean, we can think about the kind of classical densities in terms of the numbers of buildings per square kilometre. We can think of occupancy densities in terms of the numbers of people. But I think what we also have to think about is, is the relationship between the ideas of, of density and intensity. And this changes the, the, the view slightly, because we need to think about the numbers of people and the numbers of activities which go on in, in, in the same places at the same time, which kind of give a conviviality, which give a bustle, which give a sense of, of energy in a number of places, the kind of agglomeration that goes on. So we need to think about density in relation to that. We need to think about it in terms of density and, and transit and the number of cars, the number of taxis, the number of rickshaws, the number of, of movable vehicles that go around and around the city, around a place. All of these things combine to create different senses of how we understand density, and all of them are related to each other. So I don't think we can just think about density in the kind of classical way of just thinking about, oh, you know, it's, it's the number of people in a room or the number of people in a household. I think we need to think about all of these different activities and how they coalesce 
to construct our different visions and our different understandings of, of density within our cities. I'll leave it there. Uh, thank you, Margot. That's an excellent start. Uh, could we move over to Lucia? And perhaps, Lucia, you come from obviously a policy context in London, but also with one foot in academic uh, work with your PhD. What for you is density? And why do you think it matters for how we come to grips with the city and the pandemic? So um, from my perspective um, in London and uh, from a planning policy perspective, so I think there, is a hazard, there has been an interesting shift so until quite recently, uh, density was in, in policy terms understood as a quantitative parameter. So it was uh, linked to infrastructure accessibility and the level of accessibility would determine uh, the appropriate uh, density level for a given site. And so a couple of years ago, and after some years of uh, debate in different forums, there was a shift at a metropolitan level. So density uh, changed from being a quantitative parameter to a qualitative parameter. So the thresholds, maximum thresholds for density were removed, and there was a shift to optimization of density. Uh, in fact, maximization of, of density across sites, but also this sort of qualitative understanding of uh, the importance of how do we design a um, high density environment. So in that context, I joined Tower Hamlets. So for those of you who are not familiar with Tower Hamlets, it's an inner borough uh, within London and is the densest uh, borough in London and the UK. Uh, and in certain areas, for example, the south of uh, Canary Wharf has some of the highest densities in Europe and depending on how you measure it uh, in the world. But it's also home for um, different communities uh, with really great uh, levels of inequality. Uh, so the council at that point needed um, to sort of develop a piece of work to understand better what density means. So how can it be assessed uh, and how can we deliver good quality high density environments? So until that point, mm, new residential schemes were uh, assessed in terms of townscape impact or environmental uh, impact in the surroundings of, of these developments. But there was very little knowledge about how different levels of density impacted the quality of life of residents uh, and also the challenges that it created for people working and man managing these environments. And when we looked at uh, empirical data and research, we found uh, very little um, available uh, you know, uh, information. So at that point, we undertook one of the largest and most comprehensive post-occupancy evaluations. So through surveys and interviews with residents, building managers. And in the light of this work, uh, I think we have learned that uh, density should be conceived, uh, as Margot was saying, in a much more complex way. So it's not about only measuring density as uh, dwellings per hectare in new developments, but it's also about how it uh, relates with uh, the quality. Uh, so how different forms of, uh, of density sort of impact uh, from uh, energy consumption to waste production, quality of life of residents, not only from the point of uh, sickness that in the pandemic has been highlighted, but also uh, general well-being. And, and so we have to understand density in a multi-scalar way. Um, and that needs to be incorporated into, into policy. Uh, thank you, Lucia. Uh, I'm really struck by both yourself, Lucia, and Margot, beginning by noting this shift away from density as a number to this qualitative understanding of density operating across actually a really kind of wide range of different urban spheres that you talked about, different urban domains that you talked about, both of you. Roger, I think, can I go to you, Roger, and ask you, I mean, I want to hear 
how you conceive the MCT uh, in relation to what you're doing, but I'm also curious as to what you think this more, uh, Lucia used this phrase, more complex uh, version of density linked to quality of life, what that might open up for how we understand the pandemic, that more expansive notion of density. But perhaps you could begin just by saying something about your own approach to density and how you see that as mattering for how we understand the pandemic and cities. Uh, yes, thanks. Hello, everyone. I um, I find it difficult um, to even talk about density uh, in in like in a conversation like this now, as if we could say something really new about it. It is, as you said in your introduction, uh, it is tied to the very understanding of what cities are. And since we have been talking about cities in modern social science for 150 years now. It, it has always been there and it, it is a, it's, a, it's a concept that has been fundamental to how we, we talk about urban life in cities and what uh, you know Lucia and Margot just said added immensely to to that lexicon of what it what it means. but it is difficult uh, to to because density has been so, ingrained in both popular and scholarly understandings of what it might be uh, to break through to a new conversation. And I'm glad we're having this conversation today to perhaps move that a little bit. And since we're talking today uh, overall about a politics of density, uh, I thought I'd, I'd throw in an, an angle that is really important in many contexts and probably as much in South Africa, in the UK, as much as in Canada, uh, uh, for by my understanding, which is the fact that <clears throat> density is always related to desires around land. Uh, when you hear somebody speak about density in the media, or you know, if somebody writes a book about cities and the word density comes in, uh, as a concept that wants to explain something, it's often used in a very emphatic way, like as if density itself said something about the city, uh, that it's either good or it's bad. Uh, and, you know, we all know, you know, which way that can go, that Manhattan is a good kind of density versus, you know, some informal settlement uh, somewhere else may not be a good kind of density. So these concepts are... Uh, always linked to how land is used. So when today this emphatic use uh, is predominant, it is often linked to ecological ideas about how to live a better uh, life on this planet, uh, which is um, which is threatened by climate change, or it is uh, linked to uh, getting us closer together to make us more diverse and and functioning urban communities. But at the bottom of these sort of emphatic uh, understandings of density as uh, almost solutions in themselves uh, are desires about who profits from the land that is being used to make the users of that land dense. And that is really something that when we talk about the politics of density that we need to look at. Uh, you know, uh, more intensely because uh, these interests that are linked to uh, densifying the city or de-densifying the city, those interests are often not the same that those people have that want to build a better world. And that is where I want to leave it uh, uh, first and we can come back to some aspects of that later. 
That's great. Thanks, Rosie. That's fascinating. And actually, I'm really struck by some of the connections with what you were saying. And, and I know, Lucia, the work that you've been doing in London is such an intensive politics of, of land and indeed a politics, politics. Of, of, of air, right? Um, uh, and, and the kind of speculative element of that in relation to the construction of densities. But I want to move to Hung Ying. Um, and Hung Ying, I know that you know your work, a lot of your work, uh, in places like Hong Kong and indeed in Taiwan previously in your PhD research was precisely about the politics of land and air and uh, the kind of, uh, you know, the, the real estate economy. Just thinking about what Roger was just saying there about the centrality of land, how we understand density, you're in Taiwan at the moment. Um, does that resonate with your own uh, approach to density or would you want to highlight other uh, issues in, when you think about density and its relation to the pandemic in cities? Yeah, um, thanks, uh, Colin. And also, I, I'm kind of struck by how uh, Margot and uh, Lucia was opening about uh, their observation of how urban density is being understood through intensification and more kind of social dimension. Um, in Taiwan, come back to your question, I think there is some kind of weird phenomenon that has been observed that people thought that pandemic would uh, deeply hit the economy, but we did end especially in Taiwan now, uh, there are also rising kind of geopolitical tension between Taiwan and China, the cross-strait relationship. But then we didn't find any sign of uh, seeing the like housing affordability being improved. Uh, that being said, that is um, the the housing price was kind of staggering high and also keep increasing, and this is until now still a puzzle. And since I I haven't really uh, studied into this question, so I'll just leave it here and then changing to the other dimension that we observed in our research project on urban density in Taipei so far. And because in the density project, we can pay special attention to how the public understand, perceive and cope with the urban density during the pandemic. So uh, I have observed that uh, people's perception of urban density are widely, there are some commonalities about how people didn't really feel so much about urban density being changed, but they are variously shaped upon their own life experience, which is often a mixed product of class, gender, and cultural experience, experiences. So uh, in so far, I've observed there are two major operational logics and per perhaps lever levers behind the convenience of high-density cities. So one is more kind of about class, and the other is more about the density of collaboration. So that's the, the kind of social dimension, social quality of um, urban density. And uh, in Taiwan, I think the, the kind of um, collaboration density is more being highlighted um, in the current patterns of governance. So uh, it actually more emphasized on how uh, sometimes uh, a more kind of uh, subdivided, intensive, and sometimes fragmented division of labor, and that uh, restructured the layers of care um, as a form of uh, communal density. So the importance of, uh, like, for example, uh, understanding the mass perception of density and its impact on the pandemic, I think it is helping to prevent those policy designs that could 
actually exacerbate the situation. And one example I want to raise, actually, I also prepare a picture that I'm not really sure whether the audience can, uh, the listeners can see. Uh, one picture that I provided is that uh, there is a community venue in Taipei, uh, which set up a walkthrough UVC thermometer and disinfection gates to sustain the daily activities for the local elderly. And this is one of the most vulnerable communities in southern Taipei. With the majority population, they are socioeconomic low-income groups, immigrants, and elderly. And it was a community which hit hard by the 2003 SARS, as it wasn't really uh, just next to the hospital, which was imposed partial lockdown. And they learned from the past lessons. And the community leader, uh, they decide that th this community venue will continue to provide their elderly care service every day, even during the peak of the pandemic in Taiwan. Um, since last March. And this decision was actually contradicted to the government uh, instruction, but then they thought uh, the, the borough warden was thinking that instead of letting people just go in their own way and not knowing their trajectories, it is better to keep the service running and keep everyone to see each other so then um, he would not lose the control to... Um, so to what, what's, what kind of breach that people are exposing themselves to. So I think this ex example is slightly extraordinary, but uh, it, because it really depends on the resources available for the local communities and the patterns of local transmission. But I think this actually bring up another um, dimension about rethinking the density as a form of a socially kind of stitching, the way of um, care to each other. So I'll just stop here. Yeah, yeah great. That's excellent. Thank you, Hongyu. It's fascinating, a whole range of issues there about how the pandemic is impacting multiple spheres. And uh, the picture that you mentioned will be put up on Instagram, uh, along with some other images that go with the podcast. Uh, so there'll be pictures there for people to see if you're curious to see the, uh, what Hongyu was referring to there. Um, I know that uh, Margot wanted to come in specifically, uh, going back to Roger's point about politics and land use in the context of the pandemic. So Marco, perhaps you could come in there and pick up that point and maybe if there's a connection there to Hong Ying as well, you could you could raise that as well. Sure, will do. Um, uh, thanks so much. I mean, I think that the point that Roger was raising around um, density and land use is absolutely key. But I think that the that and the and for us what's happened and it's been really interesting in the politics of it. You know, in South Africa, what's been happening is that there's been a, a very strong anti-informal settlement sentiment that's been going on for a number of years, despite policy quite to the contrary. And what's happened during the pandemic has been this real emphasis on de-densifying um, informal settlements because they've been seen very clearly as um, you know, being the, the, the kind of bad density that everyone refers to, overcrowded, poor services, et cetera, et cetera. But that's really been cover. I mean, the politics behind that has been a more normative perspective around how land should be used and what it should be used for. And there's a very clear sense that land should not be used for informal settlements, that it, it deprives people of ownership, that it's not within the kind of capitalist regime of, um, of land ownership and land transfer. But it's been this really interesting kind of relationship between um, the Department of Human Settlements using the pandemic as a kind of cover um, to, to de-densify 
Um, but really what is, that, what is lying underneath it is a politics of how land should be used and an understanding of, of how land should be valued. And that's got nothing to do with use value and everything to do with the old kind of traditional notions of, of exchange value. So, yeah. And I think that you know, there's a long history uh, of that kind of opportunism in, in moments of crisis that uh, political power has used in the past that we could probably all refer to, and certainly other cases during the pandemic. So that point is very well made, Margot. Um, I, I was going to move on, but I can see that Lucia also wants to come in on a specific point. So Lucia, perhaps you can just follow up on this quickly, then we'll move on to our, our next uh, part of the discussion. Yes, yes. I just wanted to follow up on uh, a comment from Roger and, and yourself on, you know, density has been a concept that we have been using for a long time. And I think um, at some point, uh, and what happened at a metropolitan level, that we they thought density was not complex enough to sort of like capture all what uh, that was happening um, at the city level. And so they decided to, you know, uh, get rid of that policy. But I think, you know, uh, we need to make it more complex in terms of uh, the, the policy, uh, in policy making. But it's fundamental because it's the tool, so the, the, the decision making and um, sort of governance of density has become, at a local authority level at least, a battle. So there are lots of interest in terms of what happens in different sites. And I think density is one of the only elements that local authorities have at the moment to, um, I was going to say, fight, um, but negotiate with, with developers. And, and I think, you know, it's fundamental to have a density as part of policy to also control land value. So now that the, the density concept has been uh, removed from uh, the London plan, for example, now, we have seen uh, the, the prices of land uh, rocketing. Uh, so there is very little control of land, land value. And then that sort of um, uh, ends up in, in increasing uh, uh, really high densities. Um, so, yeah, I just wanted to touch on that. Um, yeah, so, so the, con the widening conversation about different aspects of density, questions of quality of life, environmental impact and so on, becomes a means through which local authorities can actually push back against certain types of private development, uh, uh, for example. Yeah, yeah definitely. Yeah. I think both. So from a qualitative perspective, it's important to have that understanding of density, but also we need to keep the quantitative element of density to sort of establish those sort of conversations with other stakeholders uh, sure. who operate in the city. Yeah. Sure. And as you say, the, the limits have been lifted in London with all kinds of uh, consequences. Great. Um, we started to talk here about housing and land in particular, but other issues have also been uh, raised in the conversation so far. We've talked about transit, governance, labour, uh, um, uh, the politics of care, for example, uh, that Hong Yung mentioned. Um, if I could just push you guys a bit further to think about uh, the impact um, of the pandemic in different, in relation to different kinds of densities. I mean, are, are you saying that there are particular, is it your view that the particular areas of the city, whether it's housing or transport or, or, or something else, which has been particularly profoundly impacted um, uh, by COVID in relation to density. So can we just kind of, what would you name as the key arena of density that's been that's been hit by uh, the pandemic in particular? Um, and perhaps just to, just to start us off on, on that point, um, we might go to uh, Hong Ying, who I, I know that you had your, your hand up, Hong Ying, as well in relation to the previous conversation. So perhaps I'll, I'll move over to you to start us off on that. Okay, so I'll just kind of pick up from where we left on like land value and, and perhaps density and during the pandemic, because I think uh, Taipei, uh, where the example of Taipei can offer here is kind of 
slightly extraordinary as I think there are quite a lot of this kind of speculative capital they were eyeing on how uh, this is kind of taking up the chance of um, Taipei being less affected. So then the capital just kind of pull in to buy lots of that kind of real estate uh, and, and push this kind of development of uh, housing prices. But on the other hand, I, I would like to share a recent experience of talking to um, the housing activists based in uh, Manila, because I think they offer a kind of contrasting example, especially about how uh, density is being reshaped during the pandemic, where I'm really sorry about this, uh, the background no noise. Problem. I'll just no probably problem. leave it, yeah, wait until it fade away. Okay, so just coming back. Uh, so uh, recently I was talking with um, a Manila, a housing activist from Manila, and he kind of shared about how the Manila government, actually in the Philippines, certain time kind of density and especially the transit, the, the kind of mass uh, transit system that were uh, largely run by rickshaw uh, was being blamed for making the, the kind of transit density unsafe for many people. So instead of uh, investing more uh, in like public health directly, the government used this as a, an excuse to justify their expansion in um, local transport infrastructure in the name of transit-oriented development. And I think this is also something probably echoes what Margot um, and other authors were their, their newly added, um, added published book on gasifying the city, it talked about this kind of transit-oriented development that, they, that is kind of leading um, the city investment and also the kind of density expansion pattern. And in the Philippines, they, they don't really understand is that they're more kind of frontline and critical workers, their health and their vaccination need to be implemented first. But instead of putting uh, investment into the public health direct, uh, sector directly, uh, the government actually choose to um, it put more money into um, the trans transit infrastructure. This is kind of some, there's some underlying logic about uh, how it actually used the pandemic has been utilizes as the, uh, utilized as an excuse to um, draw more real, real estate investment rather than uh, securing the public health. So I'll just stop here. Fascinating. Thanks, uh, Hung Ying. And Roger, I wonder if we could come to you on this point. Uh, we're hearing uh, a couple of cases here, aren't we, about the sort of political opportunism of, of governments uh, you know, furthering pre-existing agendas, but using the pandemic as a sort of dressing for that. I don't know if that's something you'd like to specifically comment on, but also just to ask your, your thoughts on this larger question of, of sort of the, the particular kinds of densities that have been especially impacted by COVID. Yeah, thanks. I um, just to go back to that last round of conversations on your first question. Uh, there is a very good example of exactly sort of these pre-existing um, agendas that have now come to the fore in behind uh, the the fog of of the pandemic. Uh, I live in Toronto, uh, which is in the province of Ontario in Canada, and province of Ontario is governed by a very conservative. Uh, government which came in two years ago on, on a very uh, strongly uh, neoliberal agenda of increasing the economic prowess of the province and opening up the, the, the uh, province for business. 
um, and getting rid, rid of what they call red tape. Uh, and now they have come through on many of those uh, behind the fog of the pandemic, many of those agenda items. And one of them is really uh, typical for the discussion we've had about the politics of density and land use, which is they uh, have used a tool uh, that is called a ministerial zoning order which uh, is pretty much what it says it is. It is uh, uh, basically a directive given by the minister, uh, by the government itself, of how land should be used. And they have intervened in a variety of places in the province now um, to to increase uh, land value and land value capture in, in areas where there should be environmental assessments, where there should be more discussion about how the land should be used. And they have explicitly used density as an argument and to say we need to create housing, uh, affordable housing for people. We need to do this in order to create better densities. Those are the, the now the, uh, the arguments that are being made on this kind of uh, uh, platform that has now been created in, in this context. Uh, but I want to move on to your second question, which is uh, about density and how it has been changed and how we have begun to change in uh, looking at density since uh, the beginning of the pandemic. And uh, to go back again, just briefly without, you know, uh, I mean, this is something that most of us know intuitively, but uh, the, the modern idea of density the, in, is linked to modern societies, modern cities. Uh, and uh, it goes back to uh, notions that Karl Marx, for example, developed around uh, the factory that is the, the the factory was the equivalent of what Engels described in Manchester in the living quarters of the proletariat. The factory is a massing of people and machines uh, and in, in a particular building. So they, these densities were created out of what previous were agricultural societies. So it's linked to industrialization, to modernization in that way. But it's also linked, uh, just want to throw this in without being, you know, uh, really entitled to speak about that in any knowledgeable way, but it's also linked to the plantation as a way in which densities in world capitalism were were created. Now, fast forward to where we are now, uh, the, the modern institutions that came with these kind of ideas, the factory, workers' housing, and the plantation, what we have left from that type of density is the long-term care home, the hospital, the school, the prison. These are the institutions of modern society that have become now the hotspots of uh, the pandemic. These are the places where people died. These are the places that had to, uh, places that had to be particularly regulated, cared for. So this is a very interesting moment that those kinds of institutions, many of them were brought in at the last pandemic, like hospitals were built after the Spanish flu of of 1918. Um, Public health institutions were created. Those are the kinds of institutions that have now become the focal points of the current debate about densities. And so in that case, density is killed. And of course, to go back to the workers uh, housing in the factories and the plantation, Look where we still have uh, outbreaks, which is in the, you know, the Amazon warehouses and in the slaughterhouses, uh, where often there are immigrant workers uh, employed. So it all comes around to the same kind of mix of you know, uh, what was previously referred to as of use values and, and exchange values that capitalism just reproduces spatially uh, and continues to do so. And the pandemic has both revealed 
the crevices in these models, but it also has, of course, uh, you know, reinforced the, uh, the, the kinds of dynamics that those models uh, carried with them all these years. I think that that notion, Roger, that the kind of inbuilt historical inequalities and, and vulnerabilities are sort of playing themselves out in the current vulnerabilities connected to density in the pandemic is, is a really uh, incredibly insightful uh, historical reading of the pandemic. And I, I, I'd, be, I'd love to know, um, uh, Margot, uh, looking at the context of South Africa, where, of course, the history of apartheid and the legacies of that continues to the present day, to what extent those kind of histories may have um, rolled into the, the playing out of the impact of the pandemic in, in South Africa. Perhaps you can say something about that, or, or, or if, you, if you prefer to talk more, more generally about the impact uh, of the pandemic on, on density, what particular issues would you want to flag up there? I think they're actually joined. I don't think we can, we can separate them at all. I think the, historic, the historicity yeah. of impact is is directly linked to 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 kind of what's going on mm -hmm. so i mean you know i was thinking as roger was speaking about the fact that um two of the biggest sectors that have been hit by by the pandemic have been the informal traders and the paratransit taxi industry and but in in completely different ways so the informal traders have largely been removed from city street corners they haven't been allowed to trade They've, they've effectively been completely removed out of public spaces. And, you know, the, the reason for that is, is once again, this kind of historical system where informal traders don't have a great deal of voice within the participatory governance model of, of South Africa. They, they're, they're largely a very apolitical, um, not very powerful lobby within within the within the kind of context of South Africa, and this is historical. That they've been demobilized, depoliticized, and and consistently made vulnerable for 70, 80, 100 years in the Johannesburg context, and probably even longer in the Cape Town kind of context. So that that's been one, one set of actors who have who've really, I mean, they've they, they've not been able to earn a living pro properly for well over a year. Um, and that's had huge implications for their quality of life and so on. Conversely, the, the transit sector, the, the paratransit sector, which basically moves about 80% of people on a daily basis around South Africa, uh, made up of these minibus taxis, as, as we call them, they they are they were told to reduce numbers. They were told that they could they had to um, obey certain rules. There were all kinds of regulations that were put in place. But the taxi industry, which has largely been run as a mafia um, in South Africa, pushed back and said, no, we, we will not obey any of these rules. We're not interested in your legislation. We need to make a living. It's difficult enough considering people are in lockdown and we, we're doing a very small amount of um, tra travel compared to what we were doing before. And they simply pushed back. Um, and what it did is it revealed in very stark relief how powerful the taxi industry is and how historically powerful they have been in, in the South African context. I mean, they, and, and, and also they have very strong links into um, the party politics of the country, into having links into um, politicians and government officials. And so what we've seen is, is this very differential impact of the pandemic on two entirely different sectors. And that the, the, the differential has been based partly on the historical con connections of what's happened and who has who's had political power and who's had connections to political power and who hasn't. And that's been made manifest really on the landscape of the South African cities. 
Excellent. Thank you, Marco. Uh, Lucia, perhaps um, I could ask you, looking at the context of Tower Hamlets and uh, uh, the borough uh, the, and the work that's been going on around the pandemic, where do you see the particular impact of the pandemic on densities in the area? Thank you. So um, from the point of view of Tower Hamlets, but also uh, London, I think we have seen um, the pandemic impacting at different scales. So I just want to start, for example, with the neighbourhood level. So um, we have seen, I mean, given uh, the pandemic, uh, that people are living more locally. And so there has been um, an increase or exacerbating tensions around the access to open space. So I'm sure you have all uh, read about uh, in the news about what is happening with the uh, low traffic neighborhoods. So I think as, as Roger was mentioning about how the pandemic has been utilized by neoliberal agendas to push certain interests, also, I think uh, on the progressive side, the local authorities are using the pandemic to push, for example, for the prioritization of pedestrians and cyclists as opposed to uh, cars. And this has happened in London, but also in Barcelona. And this has given, um, has created a lot of tensions and is a very political debate that I think brings back uh, the right to the city. So who is meant to be using public space? For example, uh, it has, uh, you know, uh, highlighted also the lack of uh, play space for children and, and opportunities for children to you know move independently in the city. So that's one scale where I think you know uh, the pandemic has impacted quite strongly, but also uh, at the home level. So in the work that we have done, we have seen how certain functions that as, uh, also Roger was mentioning uh, following the, the industrial revolution were externalized, such as work or care, has been now pushed back to the home. And this has created, again, tensions in London in particular, uh, given the fact that uh, the flat sizes are the, the smallest uh, in average uh, across Europe. And then I think uh, I just wanted to mention that in light of the research we have done, there is also another area that usually gets uh, overseen. So I think if from the home perspective, I think functions that were previously externalized uh, during the, the industrial revolution, such as work and, and care, have been now internalized. And that has created tensions uh, in, the, in, the, in the home, in London in particular, given the fact that the flats uh, are the, the smallest uh, in, in average uh, compared to other European uh, countries. But also, I think I wanted to mention um, another area where the pandemic has had a great impact and that usually gets overseen, which is communal spaces or domestic commons. So uh, courtyards, circulation spaces. And I think we have seen in, in the light of our work that these places are key to mitigate some of the issues in terms of uh, inequality. Um, but usually those spaces are forgotten, forgotten are very poorly designed. And, and therefore fail to meet their, their intended functions. So um, I think you know, uh, these three areas are quite key um, in thinking about uh, the pandemic and, and, and the where uh, of the entity. Uh, thank you, Lucia, that's fascinating. I, I'm, I'm really interested in some of the issues that have come up around the geographies of uh, density here in terms of the impact of the pandemic. So and I would love to ask you, you, all of you about the kind of the where of density, the sort of geographies of density in relation to the pandemic, because we've heard about informal traders, uh, taxi drivers, rickshaw drivers in places like Manila, but also in South Africa. Um, we've heard about care homes, prisons, hostels in, in North America, but elsewhere, uh, particular kinds of geographies which um, have been particularly vulnerable 
because of the inequalities in the cities that we're all looking at in different ways. So I suppose my question is, how do we understand the geographies of, uh, uh, of density in the context of this pandemic moment, given that a lot of the public debate is really about, for example, uh, you know, new patterns of working from home, people buying houses in the suburbs or outside of the city. You know, the geographies of the, the kind of public conversation tends to be about this kind of centre-periphery relationship in the city. But what we're talking about here, what you guys are saying, is much more uh, kind of a nuanced uh, uh, notion of different groups and spaces being particularly impacted. So I don't know, perhaps, Roger, you could uh, uh, begin here with uh, some reflections on this question of the where of density in the pandemic moment. Yeah, um, I think that the, the main point here is what Lucia just uh, mentioned, which is the uh, re-domesticization, is that a word? Uh, to make a domestic again functions that were public or that were outside of the home. And that really has created a sort of an inversion of uh, you know processes that had just prior to the pandemic gone on. In Toronto, for example, um, We've had what they call a condo boom, a condominium boom. Um, you know, those of you who have seen images of Vancouver or Toronto over the last 20 years, you've seen huge glass boxes being built, mostly on the waterfront. Um, tens of thousands of uh, new, very small often condominiums were built and increased the uh, built density and, and brought population back into the center of the city. Those condominiums are very small. Uh, they're like boxes in the sky. And they uh, have become now a, a matter of uh, like a contentious space in many ways because uh, they were built uh, in an urban environment that provided restaurants and fun places and spaces, entertainment places outside of the condominium in walking distance. So uh, mostly young people, this was linked to the millennials coming back to the city. Young people could live in these condos in fairly small places uh, in the center of the city because uh, life went on somewhere else. It didn't necessarily go on in, in the living space in the condominium, but that has now changed. So uh, there is a push from that kind of built density to other kinds of densities as the people who inhabit these places now have been looking for more space uh, where they can combine uh, uh, residential uh, purposes, care and work in one living space. So this has led to the assumption that uh, in this region, in the Toronto region, as in other regions in, uh, in, in the world, uh, there has been a, sort of a tendency to look for uh, more spacious quarters uh, elsewhere. And often the idea is that uh, that elsewhere is in the suburban ring, where there is also a different kind of uh, housing form available, which is the single family home, the ground related sin single family home. So the, the push for more uh, space is also uh, apparently a push for a different form of building, uh, but that different form of building, of course, also symbolizes a different form, uh, at least in the North American context, a different form of sociality, a different idea about family, what family is, what families should do, what uh, a house is for. It's a, a place where children are raised. And it's all these 
fairly conservative ideas about what life is like and what urban life is like have pushed back into the uh, in, into the picture. But it, it isn't as simple as that. This is just one uh, you know way in which the geography of density has moved because the people who are now moving out of the city, uh, if they are moving out of the city and if that is by their choice, they often look for a different kind of a suburban experience as they move. They want to have things that they are used to when they live in the city. They don't want to go back to sort of the classical 1960s idea of what a suburb is. They want fun in the suburbs. They want cycle uh, infrastructure, cycling infrastructure in the, in the suburbs. They want perhaps to have a, a cafe at a street corner. So we will have to see how that goes. So this is one way in which a geography uh, has uh, changed. And you can see that in the development again, coming back to my very first point, in the development of real estate prices. This is costly and it has driven up uh, real estate prices in those more peripheral areas uh, that and the we are now talking in Toronto the real estate industry is talking about a suburban housing bubble a uh, real estate bubble uh, that the houses are pri housing prices are completely inflated because of that I just want to say uh, this is just the one side and it's linked to this idea that housing is a question of choice and people make the choice to move somewhere else away from the pandemic uh, but there is another one of course uh, which is that you know, the majority of people can't move anywhere. Uh, they are, you know, trapped by, uh, you know, having children in a particular school or having a job in a particular location. Uh, and they don't have the means to buy a house in the suburbs. So hundreds of thousands of people will remain in those kinds of dense inner city environments. And those dense inner city, in, uh, when I say inner city, they can also be inner suburban. In those environments, they are linked to particular other densities that have nothing to do with residential. They are linked to a trip on the bus with uh, many, many other people who go to the same kinds of minimum wage jobs in the service industry in other parts of the city. So when we talk about choice and the change of geography, the change of desires to move out of the city, let's not forget that there is another uh, type of uh, densities that are more landlocked in a way. They are more locked into the location where they are. And the pandemic has exacerbated the grievances in those communities without giving those people a reasonable way to change their lives. Uh, thank you, Roger. And I'm struck by some of the uh, similarities with uh, some of the work that Lucia is doing in London in relation to local authority. And perhaps we can come back to that, Lucia. Uh, but just before we do come to you, um, Hong Ying, I mean, I'm very interested, Hong Ying, in how this is playing out in Taipei, which, of course, is a city which uh, has been kind of heralded globally as being relatively successful in the management of, of COVID. Um, to what extent is uh, the pandemic shifting uh, the geographies of density in, in the city when, when it's had actually a relatively um, a less severe hit on, on urban life than it has in other places such as Canada uh, and the UK. Yeah, uh, so while the, the kind of successful stories are more, very much circulated in the international media, I would probably like to bring up another more kind of reflexive uh, aspect about uh, rethinking um, urban density and, and about the ways, ways uh, in plural form of uh, density. So perhaps the most direct impacts of the changing density imaginary in 
policy planning in Taiwan uh, uh, and also in a lot of countries is the idea of uh, citizenship and global mobility. And especially the, the government in imaginary about what, what would be the risk about global traveling. And it highlights the, the remapping of citizenship priorities in terms of prioritizing your, uh, their own nationals, the nationality and the, the country's epidemiological situation. So in, in Taiwan, for example, Taiwan society has long relied on migrant workers from Southeast Asia as the major workforce for the elderly care. And recently, there, there are several kind of policy change about this because of the, the kind of relative um, relational pandemic situation across Southeast Asia. So, um, for example, with increase in the number of infected migrant workers incoming uh, incoming migrant workers into Taiwan, uh, for example, uh, Indonesia. The Taiwanese government suspended the introduction of Indonesian migrant workers at the end of last year. What does it mean is that while there is a really serious shortage of these critical workers at the care industry in Taiwan, the government encouraged the human resource agency to seek for more kind of healthy uh, um, potential labor force from other countries, they were less affected by the pandemic. So here it shows the hidden logic of this, that uh, the, there is a kind of intra-country labor mobility that is built upon the idea of importing healthy labor, healthy body, rather than consuming the local public uh, health resource. And what behind this example is that it actually suggests the cutoff of certain existing manners and relationships of migrant domestic workers and their agencies and the families they, they've been working with. And one striking issue about, I think this is a, an example about showing how the restructuring across the urban economic labor, social and developmental geographies for years to come, because um, this is something that we show, we see how the uneven geography emerge that uh, it, it poses a question about how and why with people who are infected and may have more vulnerable family members to take care of, they need to take the risk to travel abroad to serve other families. They, are, they were way less affected by the pandemic. Thank you, Hongying. And that raises a really uh, vital set of issues we haven't discussed so far around uh, migration. Um, so thanks for adding that to the discussion. Uh, Margo, do you want to come in here? Please, thanks very much. You know, it occurs to me that the situation here is quite different. Um, and because trying to understand the geography of the pandemic and its epidemiology, I can never say that word, um, is, is based on data. And here, what we have is a situation where data is not in short supply, but is, 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 is centrally controlled by a number of government institutions. And so, the data that's been used is is incredibly suspect because once again, it seems to be tied to a series of political ends. So we know from colleagues in one of the organizations we work very closely with that um, there was a claim that there was massive infection rates in some of the informal settlements in the southern parts of Johannesburg. Now, as it turned out, this was completely untrue. And once again, what it was about was, was a desire to 
redo and, and re and de-densify that entire area. And so it's very hard to tell the geography of, of the disease of the pandemic in, in South African cities because, well, not in South African cities, in, in cities in Gauteng and, and Johannesburg and the Tehrans because of how data has been controlled. And what we, what we think we know is that the assumption that informal settlements would be uh, locales of massive infection because of their, their overcrowding and their poor services, all the bad density stuff, we think is that's actually not been the case. Um, and rather what we've seen is, has been outbreaks in the more middle income areas and in areas where there's been an ignoring of, of the lockdown regulations, people not wearing masks, people not for hand washing, those kinds of things. So for us, the geography of it is, is very, very difficult to work out and is deeply linked um, into these political processes which make claims about um, where, where the infections have happened and how they've happened very suspect. And that kind of brings us full circle to what um, Roger was saying earlier about the politics of these situations. Absolutely. And, and uh, so many cases that I'm sure we're all familiar with now internationally of, of um, uh, certain types of typically lower income neighbourhoods being blamed for um, uh, infection uh, in given cities without actually the data to support it. And, and lots of, actually lots of data showing that uh, the links between density and, and the spread of COVID are are actually really uh, tenuous uh, and density plays a relatively small role, if, if at all, in the spread of, of the virus. And certainly in uh, uh, lowering communities, research in India, for example, and elsewhere. Um, so there's all sorts of debates going on internationally about that. And I think that's a vital point, Margot. Thanks for raising it. Um, Lucia, uh, can we move to you now on this question? Yes, so I guess, um, yeah, there are some things. So basically, starting uh, with uh, what you you were mentioning about blaming density for um, levels of uh, infection. So I think what uh, this uh, the pandemic has shown is how the difference between density on the paper, so what we call a high density development, and overcrowding. So basically, areas of Tower Hamlets and London, where you know we could consider those areas as a medium density or even low density, are actually a place where homes are overcrowded and therefore the the level of infections are much higher and those new high density developments where we have a, a high percentage of private homes we we don't see those levels of infection so that shows that probably uh, you know uh, there is no overcrowding and and so i think that's an important point of, of the wear of density um but i think also um that uh, the, the pandemic has brought a new debates in London at least. So in the draft London plan, uh, there was an intention at the beginning to try and level off the, the densification. So they were uh, sort of proposing to have more density located in suburban uh, or more suburban local authorities uh, as opposed to inner local London uh, boroughs. Uh, this in the final draft was removed. So again, the levels of intensification and densification has focused on, on inner uh, local authorities. So I think the pandemic might bring that back to the table. So they need to spread out uh, and, and uh, densities uh, across you know, central and more suburban uh, areas. Um, and I think uh, 
yeah, I think I'll, I'll leave it there. Well, I just wanted to mention, sorry, that I'm focusing on the residential aspect, but also, for example, for Tower Hamlets in terms of, of business and financial centers, uh, Canary Wharf has been uh, greatly impacted, but I think it's still quite soon to know what is the impact and whether there will be some level of recovery or, or reconversion into, into other uses. Thank you, Lucia. Um, so we're, we're getting towards the end of our conversation and I want to leave some time to, for people to offer some final reflections as we wrap up. But before we do get to that conversation, um, stepping back from the range of issues we've discussed here, we've covered an enormous amount of, gr of ground in terms of the issues and the places uh, that have come up. Um, what would be your reflections on the politics of all of this for the city, the politics of this encounter between COVID and density uh, for the city? Um, I was struck in the conversation, for example, when Lucia mentioned the rights to the city and, and, and building a kind of urban commons. Um, uh, Hong Ying, you talked about politics of migration. Um, uh, Roger talked about the need to pay attention to the historical uh, uh, geographies and politics at play in the contemporary unfolding of the pandemic. Margot, you've talked about the politics of data, the politics of pre-existing political agendas, right? So we've already started to grapple with this, but perhaps I could come back to each of you now and just ask you to, to reflect on what you think as the, the kind of politics of these developments that we've been discussing uh, over the last period. Um, perhaps, um, Hung Ying, uh, I could ask you to get us started on this. Okay, yeah, uh, I'll probably try to reflect on two points. They're quite kind of imm immature, but just kind of um, uh, something that I come up with. One is about more how, how this pandemic actually changing the way that we think of density through, um, for example, the relation, the, we, how we live in the relational world. And one of the approach that uh, we are focused in uh, the project is that uh, we also look at the, the kind of devices, the relational interfaces, um, not only about the physical spaces that people need to share or uh, like for example, overcrowded home, but also about what sort of um, interfaces are being imagined and functioned. So uh, one thing I'm looking at, even staying in a relatively bubbled situation of, in Taiwan, uh, what I'm studying is how the bubble of routine density is being sustained against all kinds of challenges and how, uh, what, what sort of measure, why, why would people follow? And so one thing, for example, about the surgical mask is that um, it seems for many, it seems like surgical masks master their popularity as a sign of pandemic preparedness. But looking into the logic of using the, the surgical mask, um, I think there's a lesson, a collective lesson for people here is that uh, people quickly adopt it, not because it's a personal um, protection equipment. Um, is that on the contrary, it's not about protecting yourself. It masks are don't, not really to protect where from getting infected, but to knowing how oneself, one's own behavior from speaking to spiting to coughing could actually affect others' health and especially unknown others. So this is something that we are kind of reshuffling our own standing about how one could relate to each other. And there's other more kind of substantial examples of such devices, such as the housing infrastructures from the window, uh, ventilation system, pipeline systems, elevator, et cetera, could become the kind of interface that people started to be, 
to aware that, especially in the vertical community, that lots of people who got infected not because of physical direct encounter, but because of this kind of invisible transmission routes. So this is one of the key uh, the dimension that I want to raise. The other thing that I want to point out is about how the pandemic also taught the lesson, a very challenging lesson and ongoing about how to cope with multiple fears. They are all uh, kind of encompassing at once. So when thinking about, uh, for example, the prote political protest emerged during the pandemic over the past one year, for example, what we see in the mass protests sparking Hong Kong and Burma uh, over past months is two years. The, the kind of political intensity that brought by the rise of authoritarian and military regimes has pushed people to make very difficult decisions to choose between political risk and public health risk. And I think there, uh, and also in many places, they are also suffering from the fear of uh, staying in hunger and other situations. So they are definitely, just come back to the, the initial point that I raised about uh, there are two different type of labors that we utilize the density. One is perhaps about the class, the other is about coordination. It's uh, the, the decision-making moment that how we shift from more kind of differentiating the class and the level of suffering to more uh, the kind of collaborating and coordinating um, density. Thank you, Hongying. There's so much in there. And I think that you're absolutely right that there is going to be, isn't there, all kinds of legacies around the politics of the encounter, all those spaces of interface that you mentioned, uh, the politics of crowding and, and specific kinds of crowds. Um, and how people perceive and experience those kinds of crowded situations as well. There's, there's a kind of open set of politics there, which I think is absolutely pivotal uh, for the next few years. Um, could we perhaps uh, move to Lucia here uh, to take us up a bit further from, from there? Yeah, and so I think um, from from the point of view of my point of view, uh, from a local authority perspective, I think the pandemic uh, is showing a better appreciation and higher value of health and the importance of city design and radical inequalities uh, in terms of air quality, overcrowding and access to open space from the public uh, per perception. So I think we can expect more pressure and scrutiny from residents and media on the quality of new developments uh, and whether they meet uh, the needs um, of, of communities. And I think uh, also in terms of uh, the impact of the pandemic moving forward, I just wanted to raise here the how the pandemic uh, and density is highlighting or um, sort of, uh, yeah, uh, yeah, highlighting the importance of uh, the public sector and the more proactive sort of planning. So I think we have been operating and there are more sort of reactive uh, attitudes from local authorities in regards to density. And I think the pandemic has shown that, you know, the, the public sector and local authorities have to be proactive. We cannot rely on uh, developers uh, to deliver good uh, designs within the red lines. I think we need to be more proactive and be more comprehensive in the way we design cities and we ensemble different parts of the city together to make sure that we are delivering, you know, good 
quality open space and we are mitigating against some of the of, of these issues and i think also um from a local authority perspective we are saying that uh, it's important to integrate better different areas of policy so I think, for example, in my local authority, there is a new team. So trying to work across different uh, departments, because I think what it's showing is that health is closely related with the built environment, but also with a sort of a education um, a care. So I think that's also a push uh, moving forward. And finally, I think more transparency. I think in terms of how the city is built and, 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 and the governance of densification, we have been operating under quite sort of obscure and behind the door sort of discussions. And I think now there is a clear understanding that we need to be more transparent and we need to, you know, bring forward uh, better ways of uh, for the public to engage um, and, and sort of uh, make sure that we are understanding what the impact of what we are doing um, is in the communities. Uh, so better data gathering, uh, and better sort of evidence um, to support new policies. So I think that's... Thank you. Thank you, Lucia. Yeah, um, I mean, it's kind of really fascinating to think about the, the kind of impacts there that the pandemic might have in terms of local authorities rethinking their own relationship, their own work on density, rethinking their relationship to urban health and so on. Uh, but there's some really fascinating issues that I'd love to pick up more. Uh, um, could we move to, to, to Margot? Sure. Um, you know, it's been interesting to watch the uh, what's unfolded when when the pandemic first began our president Ramaphosa stood up and he gave these incredibly inspiring reassuring um addresses to the nation um they became known as as um, family meetings um kind of colloquially and at, this, at these family meetings for at least the, the the initial stages of lockdown there was the sense that i'll i'll Government was handling the situation incredibly well. That the uh, members of the of the primary party, the, the African National Congress, were all aligned, and that you know for at least the first three four months, there was really this very strong sense that um, South Africa and South African politicians and politics were were really pulling together, and most people were very impressed. And then it all started to fall apart, and we started to see what was revealed was as as the noise lessened and um as the lockdowns went on it was kind of like watching the bones being pulled back off a carcass and we were really left with seeing the 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 skeleton of what was happening underneath and and looking at it and seeing how these issues of corruption which have been plaguing south africa or how deep-seated they are seeing the kind of schisms within the um, majority party, how, how divided and how divisive that party is at the moment and how little support um, the, the president has. Um, we were able to see the, the silos in which the various government departments are working and even that they, they were supposed to be pulling together, there really were issues around coordination, collaboration. And so, you know, over the period of, of the of the of the pandemic it's been kind of witnessing in a way these deep-seated these really entrenched problematics um and some of them have become just even more embedded over time um but it's been really about a politics of reveal a politics of being able to to look behind the noise and some of the the kinds of rhetoric that that we're often presented with to see just 
the to, to really understand the state of our government and our governance in South African cities. And that's been, for many of us, um, deeply disappointing. Thank you, Marco. Uh, Roger? Yeah, there's so many points raised by my colleagues here that I'd like to engage with because they really confirm a lot and make me think about what's happening here in Toronto and Canada and other places I've, I've observed. But I'd like to uh, float a concept that which that's been going through my mind, uh, thinking about the politics of density um, lately, which is this idea of a rewilding of the city, a rewilding in so many ways, because the, the modern city that has created the densities in which we now live, uh, that, 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 was that modern city was created by order uh, and planning, urban planning, particularly in the hygienic city of the 20th century, wanted to create an order that actually took the dirt and the animals and uh, everything natural away from urban living in many ways and, and sort of hedged everything in, uh, in, in the bacterial uh, understanding of what life and what threatens life had to be managed in, in that way. But in the pandemic now, we've seen a, a certain rewilding there of, of course, the anecdotal uh, aspects of actual, you know, animals moving back into the city, not just the dolphins into uh, the waters of Venice. But uh, also, um, you know, here in Toronto now, you have coyote attacks on pets and you have uh, all manner of, of wild animals back into the city. But that's not really what I mean by rewilding only. I, what I observe is also that people just break the rules everywhere, which is maybe more noticeable in a stuck up um, Victorian city like Toronto used to be, and it is not anymore. And to, last night I took a walk as I do most nights through the parks here. And I noticed that there were many fires going everywhere. This would have been unimaginable. People sitting in social distance around fires drinking, which is also unimaginable in, uh, in, a, in a city which doesn't allow public consumption of alcohol. These kinds of things are now going on. People on the beach just hanging out. And it's not that warm here. It's just the beginning of of spring. So the city has really changed. It has been rewilded in so many ways. And I think there will be a new politics around that because it'll be difficult to, to take that back from the people. It will be difficult to hedge people back in. There will be fights over the use of public space, just even to walk in the park, not on the path, but everywhere because you try to avoid people. You walk everywhere in the park. You walk across uh, you know, uh, the lawns. Those kinds of things have now become common practice uh, in the pandemic and they will uh, there will be a politics about whether that should be uh, maintained uh, going forward now the problem here is again that uh, this the, 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 while society has come into its own and claimed its own spaces and has been backing up uh, a lot of the pandemic measures that the state brought in and society has realized itself and as urban society and has found new ways to be in the city the state has also found new ways of being in the city, and that is through surveillance technologies of trying to control uh, people's movements and trying to control particular people's movements. So uh, the homeless people who are now everywhere and put pitching tents everywhere in the city are constantly under threat from the local state and the provincial state uh, as they are being pushed in and out of certain spaces and are being managed in ways 
that are not democratic and not uh, not in any way liberating. Uh, that is, of course, linked to what we haven't talked about at all, uh, which needs uh, particular attention, is these new technologies of surveillance that have been evolving in, in the pandemic that have now become public technologies, technologies that we uh, have gotten used to live with. And the question is, what will the be the politics of the use of those urban technologies as we move forward? And I expect a lot of debate around that, and not just in those arcane spaces where people debate the smart city. I think that is something that we will have to debate across uh, the field of urban studies. Uh, thank you, Roger. It's been fascinating. As ever, you've given us uh, more to think with uh, rewilding uh, the politics of new surveillance technologies and forms of control vital uh, and as you say we haven't had a chance even to get to those issues but they're fascinating and important um we're at a point where we need to wrap things up and it's been fascinating to hear your reflections uh, on, on these very fast changing uh, circumstances i just want to give you guys a, a, an opportunity if there's any final thoughts or reflections that you you want to throw in perhaps issues you haven't had a chance to, to mention in the last couple of minutes here um, so it's sort of open to see if anyone's got any final uh, thoughts. Um, Lucia, I don't know if you want to, if you have anything you'd like to add at this, at this point? Um, well, um, I think, you know, it's a very sort of broad debate and I think we have touched in, uh, on, on many different issues. I just wanted to say that, in, in my opinion, the pandemic has not sort of like um, created new issues, but has uh, highlighted, you know, historic issues. Uh, issues uh, happening in the city and I think also the pandemic is a moment of acceleration in, in, in history so I think for me and from the perspective of you know working for a local authority and also in academia is a great opportunity so as Roger was mentioning about rewiring uh, the different elements uh, within the, the urban context you know, opportunities to reclaim the right to the city and and for whom are we you know uh, planning and, and designing the city and, but I think it's also a great opportunity that because it has bring some level of consensus. So when we were, you know, prior to the pandemic discussing certain issues with developers or, or other actors, uh, there was quite a lot of, um, uh, you know, rejection or opposition, you know, like to, to some of the issues that we were mentioning. And I think as we saw the pandemic unfolding and through public consultation, we have seen that now there is a, a greater level of consensus about between different actors. I think I'm being unoptimistic here, but I want to believe that you know the pandemic is sort of like uh, giving the opportunity to do things uh, better moving forward. And I think uh, also it's a great opportunity for the local authorities and the public sector to to be empowered. So as Mariana Matsukatsu has been sort of arguing for you know, the, the public sector has demonstrated how they can be effective and, and you know, um, deliver um, as, as opposed to what the uh, assumptions were in the past about, you know, how sort of uh, reactive or, or slow uh, were the public sector in, in, in dealing with issues. And I think just a final call on, I think the, the pandemic has also pointed to the need of better collaboration uh, between the academia and, and policy making and, or the more pragmatic sort of world. And I see there a huge uh, sort of opportunity and chance for, for different um, people work, working in different sectors to come together and, and, and debate. So that's all. Excellent, thank you, Lucia. Uh, Hong Ying, a final thought for you in, in a moment or so. Do you, do you share uh, Lucia's optimism or, or what's your thinking? 
Uh, yeah, I think we are all still in the very much ongoing process of learning uh, what, how to handle and how to how to adjust ourselves amid this kind of um, contingent um, development of the pandemic, waves of pandemic. And I just want to probably the last thought, rather than thought, is probably in an advertisement that I forgot to mention the source that I cited about Manila. And I would like to probably take up the opportunity to advertise specifically an upcoming series of Global South conversation uh, in Radical Housing Journal, which is where my Manila source come from. And it may came out, uh, it should come up in the end of May this year. And because there is a series of ongoing conversations specifically about uh, housing activists from uh, different parts of the Global South sharing their reflections on how the pandemic reshaped local housing markets and forms of resistance. And again, thank you so much for this great opportunity. Thank you, Hongying, for your great reflections and thoughts on the issues. And uh, I'll leave it with uh, yourself, Roger, for a final, uh, just to finish us off. Well, thank you very much. I, I don't want to say anything that looks like a final word on anything, but I, I'm, I am very, very concerned for, you know, for us as progressive urbanists, um, uh, very concerned in terms of uh, the defense of, of, of transit. Uh, I think it is going to be, there will be a ruthless attack of the usual forces of the automobile industry that is now shifting to electric cars. And, uh, but also others who are now emboldened uh, to defund uh, existing transit or future transit projects. And I think that particularly in the larger cities where we live, but also in the smaller towns where more people move now, uh, that is absolutely critical that we maintain uh, a functioning network system of rail-based, but also bus-based transit uh, to move people around who have no access to private automobiles. Uh, that is various age groups, people of various disabilities, but also people, of course, who are socially uh, disadvantaged. It is really important that we maintain a conversation about affordable, uh, networked, uh, um, satisfactory transit connectivity in, in our cities as uh, the numbers have dropped to 10 or 20% through the pandemic. And so the densities may fall in cities, uh, but we need transit anyway for to not leave people behind in islands of deserts of, of, of transit injustice. And I think that is, must be on everybody's um, progressive agenda as we're moving forward. And thanks so much for this wonderful conversation. Absolutely, I totally agree. And it's a debate here in Newcastle uh, about public transport. And it's, I know it's a global debate as well uh, that we all need to be paying more attention to in the years to come. Uh, okay, uh, that's fascinating. Thanks, Roger. Thanks to um, all of you, to, to, to Margot, to Hung Ying, to Lucia, uh, and to yourself, Roger, for a really fascinating talk. We've covered an enormous amount of ground and given, I think, uh, hopefully listeners a lot to to think about in relation to density and its futures in the city. So thanks very much, everybody. Thanks you for listening. For more information, visit our website, urbanpolitical.podigy.io. Please subscribe and follow us on Twitter.